1: On September the 15th, at around 1am Universal Time, crypto fans from all over the world will be watching and waiting for a monumental shift in the technology behind Ethereum, one of the world's biggest blockchains. The event has been named The Merge, and if all goes to plan, it could have an outsized impact on the cryptoverse and even the wider world beyond. So that hypey buzzword that encompasses everything from NFTs to Web3 and, of course, cryptocurrencies, is transforming global systems of, well, apparently everything. Whether you're trading Bitcoin or accessing a Web3 social media site, the basic idea behind crypto and blockchains is decentralization. That means no government institutions or big companies deciding who owns what and which rules everyone needs to follow. Instead, blockchains use a type of database that's distributed over computers all over the world. No single person owns or controls it. All changes to that database are visible to everyone else. Blockchains promise lots of things. But one thing they've been criticised for a lot is that because they run intensive calculations on thousands of machines, they often use huge amounts of energy. The merge could slash the amount of energy that Ethereum uses by more than 99%. That's good news for the environment. But what does this radical change mean for the rest of crypto? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll be exploring the potential implications of the merge, from reducing energy use to improving security and scalability of the blockchain. Will Ethereum's shift catalyze change in other crypto systems? First, just how energy-intensive are blockchains? Until recently, the industry around mining Bitcoin, the world's most popular cryptocurrency, was mainly based in China. That changed in September 2021, when China's government prohibited the practice.
0: The People's Bank of China banned crypto mining nationwide, saying cryptocurrencies must not circulate in markets as traditional currencies. The PBOC also barred financial institutions, payment companies and internet firms from facilitating cryptocurrency trading.
1: While some Bitcoin mining still does happen illegally in China, the home of Bitcoin mining today is America. That's where our correspondent Stevie Hertz went to investigate just why crypto can be so bad for the environment.
2: From the road, Clean Sparks Mine in College Park, Georgia, is pretty unassuming, neatly tucked away behind the Atlanta Airport, where the airline offices and fire department are. If you were driving by with the windows up, you probably wouldn't notice it. But roll the windows down, or get out of the car, and you'll notice.
3: It is. I know everyone talks about how loud they are, but I was really not expecting them to be that loud.
4: Yes, absolutely. But we all say that that's a sign of money right now, so.
2: Jason Sanders is the general manager at CleanSpark. The mine was so loud, we had to go behind a sound wall, like the kind of motorways, to talk. In jeans and a company polo, he isn't about to get down mining in a pit. CleanSpark mines Bitcoin and this is its biggest mine.
4: Uh, So I think right now we account for maybe 1% of the global hash rate, so it seems a lot to us, but you know, in the world grand scheme of things, we're a little fish in the pot.
2: The hash rate is how much computational power is being devoted to Bitcoin mining. It all happens in a series of shipping containers. Jason unlocks one and there are about 400 computers stacked inside like bricks.
3: Oh wow, oh.
2: On the site, they've got 48 of these containers, 18,000 computers in total, all competing to solve a puzzle.
4: Essentially, they're solving a calculation. And once they solve that equation, they're rewarded with their Bitcoin.
2: In an old school, typical town bank, there might be one big book that keeps track of who owns what and how much money they have. With Bitcoin, that's decentralized. Everyone has a database. Bitcoin isn't the only one of these blockchains, as they're called. There are more than 10,000 other cryptocurrency systems that run on blockchain. Once data, a block, is added, it can't be removed. It's forever part of the chain, helping to maintain its security. And for Bitcoin, so everyone can agree on that data, a consensus mechanism called proof of work is used.
4: So a big part with uh, Bitcoin is the blockchain. So there's a proof of work concept. So essentially when they solve this algorithm, the reward is they get Bitcoin. However, they also get to write uh, the latest part of the blockchain.
2: Every 10 minutes or so, a new block has to be added to the chain, containing generally between 1,000 and 2,000 transactions of people spending their Bitcoin or trading for more. The only way to add a block to the chain is for computers to solve the puzzle called SHA-256, pretty much through trial and error or brute force. The first computer to find a solution alerts all the others, proving they've done the work. And if all the other miners agree, the block gets added and the winning computer gets a reward. That's currently 6.25 freshly minted Bitcoin. So there's 18,000 computers here. How often do they hit gold? How often do they solve the algorithm?
4: Um, We probably do about 10 a day. We don't necessarily ring a bell or anything like that. That would be pretty cool, probably.
2: Uh, In the early days of Bitcoin, this mining, this problem-solving could be done by a computer in a garage somewhere. But these days, the competition is way too fierce for that.
4: They're not uh, the general computers anymore. So they're ASICs, so they're specialized just for this one activity. So pretty much all they do is solve that SHA-256 algorithm, and that's all that they do. So we can't use it to surf the web or check emails or anything. They only perform that one function now.
2: Because all these computers do, all day long, is work at full capacity, they get hot. Hence the fans, causing all that noise. The day I visited, Georgia was in a heatwave, so it got close to 38 Celsius or 100 Fahrenheit that day. Even with the fans going full blast, you can feel the heat for the computers hit your face.
3: It feels like it's you know, a good like 20 degrees cooler just yes. being 10 meters
4: away. Absolutely, definitely behind there with the fans running, it just pretty much is forcing all the hot air out into those different lanes, so you definitely feel the difference in heat.
2: And all of that, the fans, but mostly the computers themselves, use a lot of electricity.
4: I know uh, I've seen our power bill, and it is quite high. I have seen a little bit of sticker shock looking at it. Um, So it does take quite a lot of energy.
2: Almost 300,000 gigajoules of power in the last quarter. That's equivalent to nearly 30,000 American homes. Because proof of work is so energy intensive, globally, Bitcoin uses about the same amount of energy as the Philippines or Belgium. The challenge now is working out how to keep crypto and blockchains, but to do it with less energy.
1: I'm now joined by The Economist's Wall Street correspondent and chief crypto nerd, Alice Fulwood. Thank you for joining me, Alice.
3: (laughs) Thank you for having me, Alok. I don't know if Chief Crypto Nerd is my official title, but uh, maybe I should adopt it.
1: After this, it will be. Um, Alice, we've just heard from Stevie, who's been exploring a Bitcoin farm. But could you just take me back to basics? Talk me through what the promise of crypto is as a field.
3: Of course. So Bitcoin was the first ever cryptocurrency invented. Uh, It was first issued in 2009. And what people mean by cryptocurrency is that it's a digital money made secure by cryptography. So in the case of Bitcoin, computers compete to solve little puzzles. And if they solve the puzzle quickest, they get freshly minted Bitcoin. And those computers maintain the validity of the ledger of transactions in Bitcoin that are happening. And it was the very first cryptocurrency token to exist. But since then, crypto has expanded uh, in all kinds of ways. There are new blockchains, there are new tokens, uh, there are new functionalities that have been built on top of it. And the sort of deep promise of all of these various technologies is that they are decentralised. So instead of relying on one centralised entity, like a bank or an exchange, to verify transactions taking place, you can instead rely on that network of computers I was talking about that are solving those puzzles.
1: And and the blockchain that you mentioned. The blockchain is this distributed database where all of the transactions of the crypto coins or whatever else are stored so that everyone can see what's going on at all points, hence the decentralization bit. So you've got one person who doesn't own this information, essentially.
3: Yes, exactly. So a distributed network of computers all have a copy of this distributed database and are checking that it is correct.
1: Now you're here to talk about Ethereum. Tell us what Ethereum is first before we go on to talk about how it's changing.
3: Ethereum is the sort of second major blockchain to come along. It was first invented in 2014 by a Canadian-Russian teenager at the time called Vitalik Buterin. And the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that Bitcoin just keeps track of transactions in Bitcoin tokens. So you can send Bitcoin back and forth between wallets and the Bitcoin blockchain keeps track of those transaction details. Ethereum instead keeps track of whether or not lines of code have been executed. So that made possible something called smart contracts. And have also made it possible for people to build any kind of application on top of the Ethereum blockchain. And so it's a much more sort of general purpose crypto setup and blockchain. When it was created in 2014, it was set up using the same mechanism as Bitcoin. So it uses proof of work, essentially sort of using a lot of computing power to verify all of those lines of code and transactions in the same way that Bitcoin does. And the kit that you need to mine Ethereum to keep the Ethereum blockchain uh, safe and secure is lots and lots of graphics cards.
1: Now, all of this mining takes up a lot of energy. And Stevie told us about how energy intensive Bitcoin mining is. Is it similar for Ethereum? Is it still very energy intensive?
3: Ethereum also uses a lot of energy. It doesn't use quite as much as Bitcoin, but at current estimates, it consumes about 80 terawatt hours of energy a year, which is approximately equivalent to the electricity consumption of a country like Chile.
1: Now, all of this is going to change this week as Ethereum completes what's called the merge. Uh, Tell me what the merge is.
3: Yes. So the merge is the name that the crypto community have given to the point at which Ethereum will switch from using a proof of work blockchain to using something called proof of stake, which is a different mechanism for verifying a blockchain. And the difference between the two is that proof of work, the scarce resource that you have to have to keep proof of work safe is lots of graphics cards or computer chips or sort of computer hardware and power. Proof of stake, you have to have a lot of tokens and you essentially pledge your tokens to say that you'll verify transactions honestly. And if you if you don't do that, then the tokens that you pledge can be taken away from you. So that's how proof of stake will keep Ethereum secure instead of proof of work. And proof of stake is a much, much more energy efficient. So when the merge takes place, Ethereum's energy consumption will drop by an estimated 99.95%. So it will effectively be on Thursday, as though you have switched Chile off in terms of electricity consumption.
1: Now, that's the level of energy efficiency I can sort of uh, get behind. I mean, that's really interesting that there's actually a solution to this uh, crypto energy issue that I think a lot of people get worried about. How is the merge actually going to work? What are the steps?
3: Yeah, it's a really fascinating process, actually, because as we've discussed, you know, Blockchains and blockchain systems are decentralized, and so for the merge to actually take place, you needed to get all of the various groups that are interested in Ethereum to kind of agree to it. So that's the developers who write the software. It's the computers that run that software to keep the blockchain updated. It's the people who have built all of those apps, uh, the DeFi apps, NFTs, etc. All of those people had to weigh in on on whether or not they want to switch to proof of stake. And so the literal process that will happen now that that's all been agreed is that the developers have written a new. Software software package it has been distributed to all uh, and sundry of the computers and they are in the process of upgrading their software to be merge ready and about 3 quarters of the computers have done that already and The developers also agreed a specific total difficulty. The difficulty is like the total amount of computing power that's ever been used to verify Ethereum. And that total amount of difficulty should be hit on Thursday. And when that happens, that new software package will be the one that everyone is using. That specific point is when that transition happens. And so that's literally how the merge will work.
1: Now, Alice, you've been reporting for The Economist this week on what the merge um, is and and, and what it entails. How are you going to judge its success?
3: Yes, so there are some very short term metrics we can use. One is how much chaos there is in terms of uh, whether everyone has configured everything correctly and, and whether any of the apps break. And then in the long term, it should set the transition for Ethereum to become a sort of much more powerful and useful technology. And to talk about both of those things, both the sort of short term technical things that could go awry in the long term promise, I spoke to Ben Edgington. He is the lead project manager at a blockchain software firm called Consensus.
5: Consensus is a blockchain software company. We primarily operate on the Ethereum network, uh, and I'm part of the protocol group uh, within Consensus. So we're concerned with the uh, foundational software that makes blockchains work. Most people in crypto come to it via something of a journey. Way back when I worked briefly in academia, ending up in sort of climate uh, science, climate research decided that uh, science wasn't for me and moved to a huge Japanese multinational to work on supercomputers. And as part of that came across blockchain technology. I very quickly became beguiled by the combination of um, distributed systems, cryptography, game theory, all the things that are in the mix and fascinated by this idea of having a permissionless global unstoppable network uh, upon which we can transact, basically taking the, the internet to, to the next level, an internet of value, not just an, an internet of data or information.
3: And obviously, the the original blockchain and cryptocurrency technologies, Bitcoin and Ethereum were based on proof of work. And my understanding is that you felt that had some sort of major flaw and that potentially proof of stake might be a sort of better technology. What made you think that.
5: Yeah. So my environmental antennae, having worked in sort of climate science, are uh, I, I guess somewhat keen and I read about Bitcoin, I read about proof of work, and it has a certain elegance, but I was very uncomfortable about this this pointless burning of, of power. I mean it is literally useless work. Then I read about Ethereum's plan to move to something uh called virtual mining, um also known as proof of stake it seemed to me an ingenious idea, brilliant idea, allayed my concerns about proof of work. And in one way or another, I've been sort of working towards this merge of the Ethereum network onto proof of stake uh, ever since.
3: Yes. So could you talk about when that moment of merge happens? What will you be paying attention to?
5: There are a number of metrics that will tell us if it's uh, going well or if it's going poorly. First thing to bear in mind is that it may suffer some degradation in performance. So, for example, we will be looking at whether blocks continue to be produced after the merge and if those blocks are full of transactions. And it may be that some are missing. Let's say 10% are missing. 10% degradation in performance is not catastrophic by any means, and it will be temporary. We'll be able to fix it quickly. The other thing we'll be looking for is something called finality. This is a new concept that comes with proof-of-stake. Blockchains are supposed to be unable to rewrite their history. This is kind of the point of them. They have one history, and it's extremely costly to rewrite it. That's what this whole proof-of-work or proof-of-stake thing is about. Under proof-of-work, you have no finality. The history can be rewritten at any time. It might be expensive, but it can be done. Under proof-of-stake, we have this finality concept where we agree as a network about 15 minutes behind the, the head of the chain that we will confer finality on blocks, on transactions that are on the network, which means the whole network agrees they will never be reverted. So we're looking for finality of the merge about 15 minutes uh, after the event happens. It might be delayed by a few minutes or half an hour or so. That's not catastrophic, um, but delay by a few days would indicate a big issue. So those are the main things we'll we'll be looking at. Participation rate is a third one, which is how many validators. So under proof of stake, we have... Uh, individual participants, they're validators. We have over 400,000 of them participating in this proof of state chain. And we'll be checking what proportion of them are turning up and doing their duty of voting on the state of the chain. Normally, it runs at about 99.5%. And we'll be looking to maintain you know, levels close to that.
3: There is one other question I want to put to you, which is essentially a question of whether or not it would ever have been or, or ever would be possible to have an energy efficient version of proof of work. Is that possible? Or was switching consensus mechanism the only way or or by far the most effective way?
5: I think energy efficient proof of work is difficult. So it's sort of by definition, proof of work must be useless work. It just has to be pure cost to the attacker. Otherwise, the cost of the the attack goes down and the network becomes less secure. So basically, Proof-of-work is doomed from that point of view. I think the future lies in, in proof-of-stake. Now that these networks, these blockchains have value, in intrinsic value, you know, Ether, Bitcoin, they're worth something, you can use that value to secure the chain.
3: If you think there's sort of no future for proof-of-work and the environmental concerns are too great, do you think that it should be banned?
5: If people decide that they don't want to use networks that are running on proof-of-work, then those networks will reduce in value and eventually mining will become unfeasible and the remaining networks will prosper. I wouldn't ban it myself, but uh, I think it will die out naturally.
1: Now, Alice, that all sounds very exciting indeed. I imagine as uh, the chief crypto nerd at The Economist, you're going to be watching computers or code going up a screen or something. What are you going to be doing as the merge happens?
3: Yes, and actually, the merge date is getting sort of closer and closer. Since I started reporting this, it shifted from about 4am on Thursday to midnight. So that's made it a bit more sort of palatable, at least to sort of stay up and watch. You know, it's not going to be the most riveting, literal screen to watch, but it's a hugely exciting concept.
1: Okay, thanks, Alice. Shortly, we'll be thinking about all of this in terms of the future of crypto with another one of our technology correspondents. First, though, it's time for the usual reminder that you can read all of Alice's reporting on The Merge in this week's issue of The Economist, which I would thoroughly recommend. Alice, as well as writing the big feature on The Merge, what else have you been reading in The Economist this week?
3: I mean, I really enjoyed our piece on Bolsonaro and the sort of potential risks for Brazil of him being uh, elected or not elected. I also enjoyed a piece in the US section on the political reaction to abortion in America.
1: It is really interesting, isn't it, what's happening in Brazil Um Brazil, of course, the home of the Amazon rainforest, which is an incredibly important carbon sink and a uh, place for huge biodiversity. So whoever controls Brazil controls that. And, you know, it's concerning for the whole world, really. Now, Babbage listeners can get their best introductory deal to subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Alice and I will be back shortly. Today on Babbage, we're exploring the future of crypto. Can changing the underlying mechanism of the Ethereum blockchain really have the revolutionary impact that developers promise? To analyse all this further, I'm here again with Alice Fullwood. And also joining us is Ludwig Ziegler, one of the Economist's tech gurus and formerly our man in Silicon Valley. Ludwig, let me begin with you. How do you feel about the merge? What do you think about its potential and its
6: consequences? I'm usually excited for crypto, basically, because this is where the rubber hits the road. So if the merge works, I think crypto has a future. I mean, whether it's going to be a great future, there's, there's other barriers. But I think this has to work because if uh, the merge doesn't work, that means that crypto cannot solve its energy problem. And you just cannot run a system like uh, Ethereum or Bitcoin gobbling up so much energy, given the problems we have with the climate. Alice, Ludwig's excited. I mean, it sounds like you probably are too.
3: No, I definitely am. I mean, it's easy to be anti-crypto when you have this enormous environmental cost, you know, the same energy consumption, power consumption, emissions as a small nation. After the merge for Ethereum, that sort of major and the sort of most important criticism goes away. And so then it becomes a case of, well, now you can evaluate and think about this technology sort of on its merits, as opposed to being so fixated on this sort of massive cost that it imposes on society.
1: OK, we hear a lot about the power consumption of blockchains and As you say, Alice, you know, if this is the way of getting around it, that's certainly good. But does that then allow it to not only get beyond those sorts of climate related discussions, but also start to scale, you know, but actually do more transactions as well?
3: Yes, so... I guess the way the Ethereum blockchain has developed is that over time, people have built all kinds of you know, little financial systems on top of it. So you have applications written in lines of code that act kind of like banks or they act a bit like exchanges for swapping crypto assets. And in general, because they're so automated, they're much more efficient than traditional financial institutions who provide these kinds of things. They don't have that many workers. They don't have overhead costs, etc. The problem has been with all of those decentralized finance applications on the Ethereum blockchain, that because the underlying blockchain itself is so slow and often expensive when it gets busy, those applications aren't really useful for normal people. So the merge doesn't solve any of those problems. Uh, It's not really going to help it scale or become more efficient yet. It mostly just fixes this energy efficiency problem. But You have heard from people like Vitalik Buterin, who is the founder of Ethereum, that essentially the merge happens first. And then the very next thing the developers who work on Ethereum are going to be focused on is scalability. Uh, In particular, this sort of technological upgrade called sharding, which would allow the database to be broken into sort of lots of pieces that can all be sort of worked on at once. And so that would allow you to go from, you know a small number of transactions every sort of 10 to 12 seconds or, or whatever it is now to potentially sort of hundreds of thousands of transactions a second.
1: Ludwig, I don't want to cast you as the uh, techno doom person here, but um, is this all going to work? Um, what could go wrong?
6: I mean, my guess is it's it's going to work. Uh, proof of stake is, is being used in, in other crypto projects. So it's actually a proven technology. The, the complication here is that you have to switch from one system to another, proof of work to proof of stake. I mean, to me, uh, the problem is more a non-technical one. So uh, the merge does solve the energy problem. They probably, with sharding, will solve the capacity, the scaling problem. But, I mean, they haven't yet solved the governance problem. So if Ethereum really wants to be the platform for a new financial system, I think they have to have a more formalized governance structure. Right now, it's a group of... Uh, developers, and they decide what happens with Ethereum, in a way, it contradicts the whole idea of uh, blockchains, because blockchains have been sold to us, or cryptocurrencies, as being these kind of decentralized organizations where you don't have banks, you don't have central banks, you don't have people deciding what happens to the financial system. And actually, that's not true. There's lots of kind of hidden points of centralization. Uh, in a way, you wonder, why are, are you all doing this? Why why this complicated system, if you end up with a system where that is actually more more opaque more centralized than uh, the traditional banking system
1: does the shift to proof of stake do anything
6: to help uh, guard against centralization at all actually in a way it makes things worse because in proof of work basically you have centralization on the mining level so so all these big data centers that that crunch those puzzles and with proof of stake it's basically the people who have the money uh, the people who hold a lot of ether that, uh, at least at the consensus level, have the say. So in order to participate in, in the decision which blocks get added to uh, the Ethereum blockchain, you have to stake a certain amount of money, and that is like more than $50,000. So it kind of perpetuates inequality. And also, the people who can stake can make more money, they earn more, they, they own more of, uh, of Ethereum. So in a way, the move to proof of stake increases the pressure for centralization, and that may be a problem. Alice, do you agree with Ludwig?
3: So one of the things that I did think was quite interesting from my reporting is that if the developers tried to push through some software upgrade, say that the merge was hugely unpopular with all of these other groups I mentioned, so people that hold the tokens, people that have built the apps on top of it, the miners, etc if it was very unpopular with all of them, then you inevitably would get some sort of pushback from all of those groups. So maybe uh, all of the miners wouldn't update their software and all of the applications would say, well, we have these assets in the real world that we are saying this blockchain is sort of keeping track of, but we don't like what you're doing with it. And so we're going to go with this other, other version of it. And so figuring out precisely how important those feedback mechanisms and that sort of decentralization is can be quite difficult. But I do think it's not as simple as the developers have all the power and they just do whatever they want. And I agree that proof of stake does seem to make it sort of slightly trickier because you've moved from a world in which, as Ludwig says, all the miners were centralised, but everything else was very decentralised to a world in which, you know, a lot of the developers also hold a lot of ether. And so it's a different kind of decentralisation.
1: Alice, let me explore a bit more something you hinted at, which is that, um, you know, if Some people on the Ethereum blockchain don't like what's going on. They may continue using different rules to the proof of stake, the merge that's happening soon. What does that mean for the blockchain? Does that mean that you'd have two versions of it sort of out there operating if, if there's a real split?
3: Yeah almost certainly someone is going to attempt this. So the network of miners that have been the ones sort of maintaining the Ethereum blockchain from inception until now have invested $5 billion, according to some estimates, in mining equipment to do so. And on September 15th, or whenever the merge actually goes ahead, that mining equipment will no longer be what gives them an edge in, you know, earning the rewards from verifying transactions on the blockchain. Instead, what will give people an edge is holding a lot of Ethereum. And so, obviously, they're not very happy about it in that their investment is going to be wasted. And so, that raises the prospect of what's called a fork, which is where, the nodes or computers that are sort of maintaining the blockchain don't update their software deliberately to try and keep running a parallel version of the blockchain that still uses the old consensus mechanism or the sort of old proof of work way of doing things. And the question becomes how successful will that really be?
1: So Alice, you said that people have spent billions of dollars on infrastructure, computers, basically. What are these miners going to do with all that stuff?
3: So even though miners have invested all this money in this, it seems as though a lot of them are going to use their computers, at least you know some fraction of their power, to verify the new system. So most miners, even though it goes against their economic incentives, are sort of happy to go along with the merge, probably because all of the economic value is going to be on that new proof of stake chain because everyone else wants that to happen. In terms of what the miners are going to do with all of their equipment, you can already see the impact of this in the sales of uh, graphics cards so in particular like asics graphics cards made by nvidia are the ones that are used to mine ethereum and last quarter Nvidia's sales of x graphics cards halved but they're not going to you know give up mining ethereum altogether they're going to move to the new system at least with some of that equipment
1: okay well that sounds positive what about other blockchains um alice are there other blockchains that are looking to follow ethereum in this transition
3: Actually, a lot of the blockchains that you could think of as potentially sort of rivals to Ethereum, most of them already use proof of stake uh, because they were invented after Ethereum. When Ethereum was invented in 2014 and, and sort of launched in 2015, the plan was always to eventually move to proof of stake, but they wanted to do proof of work at first because it was sort of the tried and tested technology for cryptocurrencies and blockchains because of Bitcoin. But now that people know that proof-of-stake works you know almost everything that is launched now is launched not on proof-of-work it's all on proof-of-stake or some other consensus mechanism there's one called proof of space and time which is where you prove that you have lots of space on your hard drive and so most of the newer blockchains are actually already ahead of ethereum
1: so if this is a change that's solely um, centered around ethereum then the big issues around energy consumption of crypto mining, I mean, wouldn't they just stay the same? Ethereum, of course, is just one blockchain operating in the space.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the big one here is Bitcoin. It's the biggest cryptocurrency by market cap. It's the oldest, the most important, and it still uses proof of work. And it's very hard, actually, to see that changing, in part because of some of the stuff we touched on earlier about how, I guess, legitimately decentralized Bitcoin is. You know, no one knows who its founder was. And so there is much less of an effort to lead the charge on sort of making it very different, which is sad because I think that it is a shame that the technology is so sort of environmentally wasteful.
6: The only thing I would add to that is the main issue here is that the governance structure of Bitcoin is it's much more inflexible. So to do something like what Ethereum is doing now with the merge is almost impossible right now. But I think that may not remain that way. Uh, once, for example, the, uh, the system gets older, no new Bitcoin is issued. There's a question, how do miners make money? And there's not enough transaction fees to go around. Uh, security may go down for Bitcoin and they may have to just find a different system. Also, it depends on how successful Ethereum is with proof of stake. If that merge, that shift is successful and, and, and Ethereum becomes bigger than Bitcoin, for instance, then Bitcoin may feel forced to change its ways as well.
1: And Ludwig, do you think that those of us outside the crypto world and the finance world should be turning our attention
6: to this? I mean, there is still a very small chance that blockchains will revolutionize, quote unquote, the financial system, that there will be kind of a parallel blockchain-based financial system. I say small chance also to make the point that I'm not that optimistic. I think the more likely outcome is that crypto will find its niche, like all technologies will find their niche, will be successful. I think Bitcoin will be around like gold is around, in a way, if people remain interested. And that's a good thing. Uh, I think you, you need crypto, you need variety, you need experimentation, and blockchains are great platforms to do experimentation. Will they take over the world? I'm increasingly skeptical. Ludwig, thank you
1: very much for joining us.
6: Thanks both.
1: Now, Alice, do stay with me. I wanted to bring back Stevie Hertz, who we heard from earlier in the show, to talk more broadly about the issue of crypto and climate change. Thanks for joining us, Stevie.
2: Thanks for having me. Now, how
1: are people trying to make proof of work cleaner, greener and better for the environment?
2: So CleanSpark, who owns the mine that I visited, is an example of this. They say that they're not just in the Bitcoin business to mine Bitcoin and make money, but also to help the transition to carbon-free energy. And I spoke to their co-founder, Matt Schultz, about this.
7: You know, you hear a lot about other companies that are using coal to mine Bitcoin for no other benefit other than mining Bitcoin. And, and we believe that that Digital currency mining isn't just about the commodity of Bitcoin. It's not just about the scarcity of the digital asset. But what it's really about is a tool to change the way that we see and believe energy works. And
2: so they say that they use pretty much exclusively carbon-free energy, a hydroelectric dam for the mine they work with in New York, and in College Park, Georgia, where I was, mostly nuclear energy. And they say that they are very clear to the power companies that they work with. They only want clean energy. Which is kind of great on the surface, right? Like, whatever you think of Bitcoin mining and proof of work, at least those 18,000 computers that I saw, they aren't directly contributing to carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere.
1: OK, but you, you don't sound very convinced.
2: I'm not, because while CleanSpark isn't using dirty energy, in College Park at least, it does still get its energy from the grid. That's why it's based there, because the local utility is almost entirely nuclear. But the rest of the grid in Georgia is by no means carbon neutral. Of Georgia's net electricity generation, about 26% is nuclear, 12% is renewable, but the rest is pretty dirty. And so I put this question to Schultz, whether they are just shuffling the dirty carbon intensive energy onto someone else's plate. And he said it's because they're clear that they'll only use carbon free power. It creates an incentive for the energy companies two-fifths of Georgia's power comes from a carbon-free source. 60% doesn't. And fundamentally, don't your minds stop that renewable energy being used for powering people's homes and helping cut down on that other 60%? Isn't it just shuffling the non-renewable energy over to someone else?
7: The requirement for reinvestment in renewables has to come from somewhere. And if the status quo remains the same there's no incentive for southern company or georgia power to make an investment in renewables because they're currently able to serve the load you build a larger load like a data mining center like a, a data center or a digital currency mining center now you're incentivizing the utility to overbuild that capacity because that's their business that's how they generate revenue and profits for their stakeholders so by having a requirement for increased renewables we're pushing the agenda to to incentivize utilities and other players to make a greater investment in sustainable resources. So while the short term, if you look at today, you're adding demand to a load that has a large component of non-renewable power, that's true as a snapshot in time, But when you look about the long-term demand, you've seen the the size of the investment. The the massive capital investment that we've made in that space isn't based on today. It's based on long-term and the ability to generate meaningful revenue to support grid expansion.
2: And he also says that they've worked to build out the grid to help carbon-neutral energy reach more homes. And it's helping the city of College Park get rid of the last bit of carbon in their energy mix.
1: So at least that's a start um, on tackling some of the environmental impacts of Bitcoin. Alice, does any of the argument you just heard from Stevie hold any water with you?
3: Yes, yeah, so I definitely think it's an interesting argument. If you wanted to think about the way that you could make proof of work mining. Actually green, then essentially what you'd need is for it to be using entirely sort of carbon neutral or renewable capacity that it's not sort of dragging away from other people. And the argument Matt Schultz is making is that it is helping to sort of create some incentives for some jurisdictions to invest in additional capacity for renewables. And so you know that is good. If that capacity then wasn't going to be used for Bitcoin mining, if it was going to be used for something else. That would be even better. And also you know. Not everyone is as green as CleanSpark. Most Bitcoin miners, you know, don't make these efforts. And so you might think that their sort of initiative is, is sensible, but that shouldn't necessarily convince you that proof of work can be sustainable at scale.
1: So Alice, we heard from you and Ludwig earlier that Bitcoin is going to continue to use a proof of work consensus mechanism and therefore it will be, still be very energy intensive. Um, so what does this mean for the future of, of that cryptocurrency?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's quite a difficult question, because the energy consumption of Bitcoin is a sort of really major criticism of it. Having said that, you've had these huge sort of run up and booms in crypto prices, even though you have this flaw. And so I don't know that it's current proof of work consensus mechanism is going to sort of hamper its ability to rise in price or grow in the future. And I think the likeliest outcome is probably that Bitcoin as a technology, as a cryptocurrency stays as it is. And if it rises in price a lot, it will also consume ever increasing amounts of energy.
1: Stevie, do you agree?
2: There's also the question of regulation, right? Last week, the White House released a report on all of this, the environmental implications of crypto. And they were pretty clear that action was needed. It said that crypto mining could put a break on American attempts to achieve net zero emissions just through their energy usage. So the report said that the first step to solve that would be for federal agencies to set standards with the crypto industry, so optionally. But if that approach doesn't work, to consider regulation, right up to the possibility of, quote, limiting or eliminating the use of high intensity consensus mechanisms. So essentially banning proof of work. Of course, this report would just be the first step for that. Something like banning proof of work would require congressional action, and that takes a while, and it would take political will, and it's not clear that that exists. But the threat of regulation is there now. Because unless there is some pressure from government, the profit incentive for miners seems so clear, so the climate just takes a back seat.
1: OK, Stevie, Alice, thank you both very much.
2: Thank you, Alok. Thank you.
1: And thank you for listening to Babbage. Babbage this week was produced by Jason Hoskin and Stevie Hertz, with support from Leonie Tanzer. The mixing and sound design was by Nico Rofast, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.